the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again. Welcome to the uh, Country 25 Minutes. We'll be back to the cricket at five minutes to one. Coming up, we'll be hearing about uh, philanthropy in regards to fire aid. That's all coming up shortly. And uh, we'll go to the weather first up as well to find out what's happening uh, around the state. We know what's happening in Sydney. And Jake Phillips at the Bureau, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So raining in Sydney. Where else around the state yeah, is it raining? Yeah, showers around, yeah. Some of the eastern areas, particularly the northeast again, which is obviously the area that's seen a lot of rain the last few days. So there's still quite a few showers uh, most of them are about the mid-north coast and, and the far north coast, but as you just mentioned, Sydney is getting some, and also a couple through the Illawarra and Hunter districts as well. Uh, luckily, it looks like uh, things should, uh, shouldn't hang around too long, uh, and the, the heavy rain that we've seen up in the northeast should be on the way out as well, which is good news, because uh, a lot of areas up uh, from the mid-north coast and far north coast have had between 50 and 100 millimetres once again over the last 24 hours, so that's on top of all the recent rainfalls. So yeah, and we've seen some warnings about flood watches and things like that uh, again. Yeah, that's right. Still uh, a couple of uh, minor flood warnings for the northern areas, so for the Bellinger River in particular. So there's still a minor flood warning there. And also for the northern inland, a minor flood for the Paru River, but that's for floodwaters coming in from Queensland over the coming days. So it'll be good to see those rainfall rates up in that region start to taper off. Uh, there will still be some showers, though, for the northeast over the next uh, two to three days or so, but it does look like they'll be considerably lighter. So just some showers, and in the 24 hours for the for the North England, New England northwest, and so did they uh, get some substantial rain there as well for the graziers? Uh, over the New England area, the falls were a bit lighter, but quite a few spots saw between 10 and 20 millimetres up around the, the Armadale and Glen Innes area. And even a couple of spots uh, just up just north of uh, Inverell uh, picked up uh, just a, around about 30 millimetres or so. So it's been a little bit hit and miss, but uh, some noteworthy rainfall up there, but uh, considerably less than it was nearer the coast. And fining up in the next few days, is that what we're likely to see? And warming yeah, up? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're, we're getting to the end of that very, very unsettled phase, which has been dominating our weather since, well, I think it kicked in around Boxing Day, just after Christmas, so about two weeks' worth of pretty unsettled weather. And uh, we're seeing a drier air mass move across the region at the moment, so things for the most part are starting to dry out. As I mentioned at the top there, there will still be a couple of showers hanging around the northern half of the coast the next couple of days. But the inland is going to be dry and uh, no storms expected for the inland for the, well several days, at least four or five days from now. And uh, the other noteworthy thing is that uh, the temperatures will be on the increase. So while at the moment they are generally below average across the state, we will be seeing an increase first in the western parts of the state and then moving across to the east, particularly from the second half of the weekend. So as we move into the new week, temperatures in the west getting into the high 30s if not uh, hitting the 40 degree mark in a few spots okay so, uh, return to average conditions for this time of year whereas the last couple of weeks have generally been a bit cooler than average yes indeed back to sort of average january weather by the sound of things a bit warmer yeah that's yep. right yes that's right okay jake thanks for that no trouble thank you drake phillips at the bureau there it's coming up to uh, 27 minutes to one here on the new south wales country hour well, the country 25 minutes actually because we'll be heading back to the cricket at about five minutes to one 
Well, in other news, an online petition's underway and set to be presented to the New South Wales Parliament next week, calling for horse numbers in Kosciuszko National Park to be drastically reduced. The petition says feral horses are causing severe environmental and cultural damage in the park and the situation's getting worse. Reclaim Cozzy campaign coordinator Candace Bartlett says native species are being driven to extinction because the horse numbers are out of control and have been for several years. We know that wild horses, introduced horses, are damaging the landscape of Kosciuszko National Park. They're driving 30 30 native species closer to extinction. It's recognising New South Wales conservation laws is that we're seeing no active management. It's been two years since the Wild Horse Protection Act has been introduced and we still don't have a management plan on the table. We've introduced this new petition urging the New South Wales Parliament to break the cycle, recognise the science, recognise the damage that's happening and urgently get that new management plan on the table. So you don't feel that the government's listening in regards to those issues? Look, we've got an environment minister who's supportive and taking action, particularly after the fires, to remove horses, but only 300 horses have been removed from the park so far, and we haven't seen a new management plan. As mentioned, it's just been two years since any active management. The National Parks and Wildlife Service needs a few more tools in their belts to try and control that population. And, um, yeah, there's just little action at the moment. So are you in favour of culling the animals or rehoming them? I mean, because some people say, you know, rehoming is not practical at all and really we need to do a big cull. It's a very difficult situation and complex issue, isn't it? So as I've um, been out in the streets, um, I've, I've been collecting signatures and as I talk to people, you know, it's a situational context. So in some areas where you can access the population, where there's roads, you can lure the horses with you know, treats and get them out of the park and rehome to those who want them. But the reality is there's too many horses to meet the conservation targets um, by rehoming alone. So some horses will end up at a knackery we know that's not great because they're exposed to long transport, which is increased stress on the animals. So, you know, on-site, culling is kinder in that situation. If it's implemented by professionals, it can be instant um, and minimise any stress on the animals. In some areas, it's completely remote and, you know, inaccessible by road. So that's where you really need those other tools um, in your belt. Well, what about those people that say that the Brumby itself is part of Australian culture and it's part of Australian history, you know, um, man from Snowy River? How, how do you respond to, to those uh, concerns? I think horses hold a place in so many people's hearts. And, it's you know, you can't deny that they, they help, you know, the European heritage um, and Australians establish. But the reality is that there's Indigenous heritage that's thousands and thousands of years beyond our our comprehension and the horses have only been in the park for you know less than 200 years and um, I think indigenous and natural heritage thousands millions of years old got to come first um, you know science is finding horses are habitat causing habitat loss and degradation so for example we know we've got the critically endangered northern corroboree frog and its population plummeted frog population plummeted worldwide because of you know disease and fungus but um, now its habitat is being, you know, trashed and trampled by these heavy-hooved animals that didn't evolve in the landscape. You know, we've got to act according to science and get those pressures out of the park. 
Reclaim COSI campaign coordinator Candice Bartlett and uh, the New South Wales Deputy Premier and the local MP John Barillaro has been contacted for, for a response, for a comment, but uh, no, no comment is forthcoming as yet. It's 22 minutes to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, one year on from the black summer fires, uh, many rural communities are rebuilding with the help of government charities and occasionally philanthropists. Big companies like Vizzy, ANZ and News Corp have all made donations of a million dollars or more. One company you may not recognise did the same by working with its investors to donate money to the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. Jeff Wilson is the founder of finance company Wilson Asset Management and he told David Clawton about the road trip he had that convinced him to take some action. We were you know, obviously aware of you know, how bad the drought was and, and also... You know, the, you know, the, the devastation of the bushfires. Uh, and we're up in Toowoomba. Uh, and, and we did a presentation there. Then we drove from Toowoomba over to the Gold Coast. And, and when we're driving, you know, this was sort of early in the bushfire season. It was, you know, sort of November. But as we drove, you know, through the you know, farming areas, you, you looked out the window and it looked like the um, you know the bushfire had gone through there, but it, it actually hadn't. You know the the grass was you know like it was just I mean there was no grass. It was desolate. <laughs> oh, that's right. And, and to me, that sort of really brought it home to us that you know just how devastating you know this drought had been, and and on top of that, obviously the bushfires. And and when we got to the Gold Coast, I remember that you know we got there. Uh, early evening, you know, we went out to dinner uh, and, and we said, look, we, we've really got to do something. We spent a lot of time working out what organisation uh, that we would partner with um, because we wanted to make sure that they were really going to, um, you know, the, the money was going to go where, where it should go. So uh, what led to you the, to the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal? Well, we liked the fact that how they operated. They operated very much on a program basis. People from you know, the regional and, and rural communities you know, would apply for grants and they'd be assessed and that, they'd be um, you know, provided with uh, grant funding. And, and we liked that model. Um, you know, we communicated to our 90,000 uh, shareholders uh, and said, look, look we're, we're happy to match fund up to you know, half a million dollars of our money you know, with your money. By the start of the new year, you know, a million dollars broadly had been raised. It was oversubscribed. Yeah, what about the been, bigger, really, how does this fit into the bigger picture of your philanthropic work? Because you've raised 40 million, I think someone told me, um, globally. Yeah, our focus is to make a difference. We're a member of you know, the 1% pledge, you know, the, you know, Salesforce and Alassian and some of the bigger you know, global organisations that are members. So you know, we, we give at least you know, 1% of our profit and 1% of our time to um, you know, charity on, on an annual basis. We, we, we actually give a lot more than that. You know, we employ 40 people and um, you know, rather than sort of me being the chair or the founder deciding where the 
money gets donated to. We have another program called WAM Give. So every employee gets ten thousand dollars to donate to, um, you know, on an annual basis to donate to you know, organisations they believe is important. We also set up um, because I'm a fund manager and have been for a long time. I'm in a fortunate position. Um, you know, I know another a lot of other fund managers in the market. So we've we set up this investment philanthropic vehicle that have got about a billion dollars of assets in total. Fund managers manage the money for pro bono for free, and one percent of that money gets donated to charities on an annual basis. And so, you know, that's a little over ten million dollars a year. And the areas that focus on is youth mental health and children at risk. Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management speaking there with David Clawton. And you can see what the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal is doing with the money. And you can apply for some funds there on their website. It's coming up to uh, 17 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. The country, 25 minutes or so, because uh, we've uh, got that break in the cricket uh, because they've taken lunch and uh, hoping to head back, although it is still raining at uh, the SCG at the moment, so we're just not quite sure what time. Uh, we're going to be going back to the cricket uh, because of the rain, so we'll keep you updated on that as well. I've got a few texts coming through. Uh, Paul at Canoundra says the, the horse is a national icon. He says um, uh, he's not uh, that not uh, not too happy with the expert we had on talking about the horse being a national icon there. Uh, also, Ian has texted in saying, um, uh, talking about the horses, he's, he says, uh, what about the problems with feral deer? In fact, uh, that is a conversation about what's been happening in Kosciuszko National Park. There is a control method, I understand, underway for deer. Um, and uh, also, uh, it's, uh, also, there's a few other texts coming through as well. Uh, we might get to them a little bit later on in the program. It's coming up to uh, 16 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour. ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, yesterday on the program we heard from the Logistics Council of Australia highlighting its concerns about a requirement for drivers crossing into Victoria to isolate after testing. A COVID test is mandatory for truckies crossing the border and those tests sometimes take a few hours to complete. Drivers were then told they'd have to isolate until they got a negative test result and the council said that was taking drivers out of service and putting pressure on freight deliveries. Well, while delays at borders and long wait times for testing are still a bit of a problem today, the council says they've had advice from the Victorian government saying they will be removing that requirement to self-isolate self upon testing. Uh, they're going to remove that requirement from midnight tonight. So uh, they had to isolate until they got a negative test result. Uh, the Victorian government saying they're going to remove that requirement to self-isolate upon testing from midnight tonight. It's a quarter to one. Well, after a difficult year due to coronavirus pandemics, Australia's seafood industry is celebrating a massive increase in sales over the Christmas period. Shops across the country are reporting an up to 50% jump in revenue over the festive season compared with previous years. 
But at the same time, some producers are still struggling with border issues and some strained tensions with China. Veronica Papacosta is the CEO of the Seafood Industry Australia and she says the bumper Christmas was a welcome surprise. I've heard reports of 50% increases on the previous Christmas, um, down to sort of, you know, 20 to 30%. Uh, but it's just very strong sales uh, across the board. Look, the the, uh, the presence of lobster was really impressive and, the, um, you know, having all that excess stock around, not so great for the producers, but was great for customers and they, they supported that product very strongly. What do you think drove that um, increase? Was it the fact that there was uh, some cheaper prices? That kind, with those kind of increases, it couldn't be just one factor, we imagine. So we think that it would be a couple. So obviously we had a long, a strong marketing push. Seafood was top of mind. But obviously having prices, especially when you're, you you know, the majors are spruiking $20 lobsters, uh, I think it just sparked people's interest and, and helped people think about what kind of Christmas they wanted. And I think with so many people home as well and, and either being able to see their family or not, they were looking to... Um, just have um, indulged themselves a little bit this Christmas and there's nothing better than, than a you know, great spread of seafood. And it wasn't just limited to lobsters, so they were supportive of the whole category. So prawns, oysters, crabs, bugs, everything sold really strongly. That's Veronica Papacosta, who's the CEO of Seaf Industry, the Seafood Industry of Australia. 13 to 1. The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, a breakthrough has been made in the fight against cereal rust. Scientists led by the CSIRO have stacked five genes to create a robust resistance package. But given it's genetically modified, it will sit on the shelf waiting until it's legally allowed to be used. As lead researcher Dr Mick Aliff explains. Well, what we've done is um, we've managed to uh, put together a sandwich or a gene stack, we're calling it, of five different rust-resistance genes um, using molecular biology. And so we've then managed to put all these genes into uh, a single location in the wheat genome so that in subsequent breeding um, activities, these things all behave as essentially a single gene. Um, The reason why this is important is that disease resistance continually breaks down to implants to various diseases, and wheat and wheat rusts are no exception. And one of the main reasons is that uh, generally there's only one or two or or perhaps three at most resistance genes deployed in an elite cultivar. And so if you put a single gene out there, it's very easy for the the fungal disease, which is what a cereal rust is, to overcome this resistance. However, if it's uh, faced with five different resistance genes, it's obviously five times harder. Um, and what we're hoping is that the combination of these five genes will make the resistance last a lot longer and be a lot more durable. So the, the rust has essentially got to knock on five doors to, to get through and hopefully by then it's harvest time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it, it's very easy to overcome one gene, but to overcome all five at once would be a very difficult thing to uh, evolve, we, we believe. So what strains of rust does this gene stacking actually um, build up resistance to? So the stack we've created uh, works primarily against stem rust, but we're also expanding now into uh, uh, stripe rust diseases. So we're starting to make new gene stacks, and some of these gene stacks are even bigger. They have uh, seven and eight genes in them that work against both stem rust and stripe rust. So 
in the future, um, effectively, we could make gene stacks against any disease, provided that we have cloned or isolated the, uh, the appropriate resistance genes. Well, given, as you say, um, Dr. Aleph, that, that these resistance genes have been identified, why hasn't stacking been done before? Well, it's because if you stack using conventional breeding, it's very hard to, to keep five separate genes together because they're spread all over the genome. So even if you can get them together, as soon as you make another cross, they start to separate. So the important thing with this research is that we've actually tethered or tied these five genes together so they can't separate during future breeding activities, which will make it much, much easier for them to be bred with. There must be some limitations, though. Yes, um, there's always limitations. What we're hoping for is durable resistance. Now, whether the disease will have the ability to overcome all five genes, we don't know. It may well do. But um, as I said, we're, we're isolating more and more resistance genes and we're making more and more gene stacks. So if this one does happen to break down sometime in the future, uh, we'll be in a, in a better position with a plan B and C and D and so forth as more genes come to light. So what happens from here? You wrap it up with a pretty little bow and give it to the breeders as a belated Christmas present? <laughs> if only it was that easy. Um, one of the difficulties we do face is that it's uh, a GM solution and at, at this point in time there's no GM wheat out there. So um, we are betting that sometime in the future that um, genetically modified wheat will be accepted. Although having said that, it should be pointed out that all of the five genes that we've included um, in these wheat lines are all wheat genes or genes from wheat relatives. So we haven't gone very far outside the gene pool to, to make this particular transgenic event. So for farmers, Dr Aleph, what does this really mean? Because as you mentioned, the solution is there, but at this stage uh, it's legally not allowed to be used. Yeah, and it's a difficult position. As I said, it, it, it all depends on uh, the acceptance of GM wheat, which we believe will happen in the future, and, and there is... Um, some suggestion now that GM wheat might be starting to be grown in um, South America. But until that happens, unfortunately, uh, the technology can't be accessed. But um, it's great to have the proof of concept to show that we can do it. And during the interim period, I'm sure we'll come up with more and more sophisticated uh, gene stacks and approaches to uh, solving the problem. Dr Miguela from the CSIRO speaking there with Tara, Tara DeLandgraft and that project was a collaboration between the CSIRO, the Two Blades Foundation, the University of Minnesota in the US, the John Innes Centre in the UK and Aarhus University in Denmark. It's uh, coming up to uh, uh, eight minutes to one. <laughs> And that's time for markets. Let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs and Leanne Dax. 29,000 lambs and 5,600 sheep sold to most of the usual buying group. Quality was impressive with plenty of weight along with some magnificent runs of Sean Trade lambs which did ignite the bidding. Store types were in reasonable supply and there were quite a few orders in place. Heavy lamb sold to weaker demand, slipping 8 to 15 to average 815 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Trade lambs, however, bounced 10 to $15, averaging 890 cents a kilogram. 
carcass weight. Light trade 160 to 175, medium trade 184 to 204, heavy trade 198 to 220. Heavy lambs 210 to 224, the extra heavies 220 to 275, store lambs 129 to 188. With the sheep yet to be sold on Leon Dax for MLA. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now and David Monk. Good afternoon. The first cattle sale for 2021 for Dubbo produced a very small yarding of just 114. Heifer yearlings and grown heifers made up the bulk of the yarding along with a few steer yearlings, nine cows and three bulls. The bulk of the cattle were in good condition and most sold at rates equal to the pre-Christmas rates. Heifer yearlings to the trade sold from 380 to 410 cents, while heifer yearlings to the feeders sold from 367 also to 410. A single pen of fair quality Angus steer yearlings sold to the feeders once again for 410 cents. Two lots of ground steers sold to the processors for 330 and 332. Nine ground heifers sold to the processors for 302 to 352, while the balance of the ground heifers sold to the feeders from 340 to 366. A single pen of very well finished heavyweight cows sold to the processors for 285 cents, while two heavyweight bulls sold for 260. A lighter bull sold to the processors for 280 cents per kilogram. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. And that's the market information for today. And the country I'll be back tomorrow, depending on the rain, in the lunch hour in the cricket, and which is uh, where we're heading back to now.